Mark chapter 14, and some of you know that Mark is a pretty concise uh, book, concise gospel. He just gets to the point, doesn't he? He doesn't pull any punches, doesn't go, I mean, he goes into detail on some things, but it's pretty concise. However, Mark chapter 14 is the longest chapter in Mark, the longest section really in, in as the chapters are divided. It's the longest chapter in this in this gospel account. And as it is divided, as I was studying this, I noticed that at the end, toward the end of chapter 12, through where we're going to look at in chapter 14, 1 through 9, it's kind of sandwiched in. Um, you have at the end of chapter 12, the, the narrative of the widow's might, of, of a poor woman giving basically all she has to to God, dedicating uh, what she has. Jesus says at the end of that chapter, truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributions to the treasury, for they all put in out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty put in all she owned, all she had to live on. And then you get in chapter 13, you get into the Olivet Discourse, Jesus talking about his uh, imminent return. And then you go into chapter 14, where we're going to start, looking through the first nine verses, and you see the account in Mark's gospel of the faithfulness of a woman once again. But then within chapter 14, we also have, it seems like it's sandwiched in again. I'm not trying to get y'all hungry, but there's, there's a, another division here. At the start of chapter 14, you, have, you see kind of the, the plot to kill Jesus. So something very negative bad, and then you have this, this beautiful story right after that. And then we won't cover it tonight, we won't cover it, um, but in verse 10 and 11 it talks about Judas and what was set in his heart. And so another evil twist in the story, in the narrative. So it's interesting how Mark divides this up, but we're going to be looking at the first nine verses, that's where we're camping out uh, this morning or this evening in the Gospel of Mark. And we start off by seeing what Mark writes. He says, Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. So before we kind of get into uh, the meat of this passage, we see Mark starting off by saying, Two days from now, the Passover is going to happen. Unleavened bread, feast of unleavened bread. So, and they're wanting to plot to kill Jesus. So, what, what's the importance of this? Well, if you remember going back way into the Old Testament, the Passover, they're uh, recognizing and commemorating the the faithfulness of their God to them um, by God saving the firstborn of the Israelites while they're in Egypt. And the Spirit, what does he do? He passes over each home. But what was the stipulation? Why would he pass over their home? The blood was on the doorposts of the sacrificial lamb. And in just a few days from now, when this text has taken place, we know that the Lamb of God is about to be sacrificed. And so they're getting ready to have this feast, and they're wanting to kill Jesus. It's interesting um, as you progress through the Gospels, 
And as we have uh, preached several sermons, you see the, the despisers of, of Jesus, the, the scribes, the Pharisees, the, the priests, you see a growing hatred toward Jesus. At first, it kind of started off by, he's a threat, um, but, you know, he's just a carpenter's son. Who is this guy? And then it comes down to, well, we need to plot to maybe try and ruin his reputation because he's healing people, he's doing all these things, he's, he's getting... Um, basically the attention off of ourselves, and, and he's, he's, he's gaining this great following. And now we see there's no hesitation. They were seeking how to seize him by stealth and to kill him. So now it's to the point of great hatred where they want him gone. They want him dead. And verse 2, but they say, for they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. They were, understand, they understood enough that he probably amassed a pretty great following to where if they tried to do this during the Passover when people were coming to Jerusalem from Galilee to celebrate this great feast, you know, where Jesus is from, there would probably be maybe potentially some, uh, a large amount of supporters. Um, I read that there were upwards up to maybe 2 million people that would come into the city during this time. So they knew if, some, if they tried to do something to Jesus then that it would probably not be a good idea. There would be a riot, or at least that's what they were afraid of. And so this is what's kind of going on. Jesus is already hated immensely by these people to the point where they want him gone. And why is this? Well, we, we've covered a few, uh, few of these things in the sermons, a few reasons why. Mark chapter 2, <clears throat> he claims that he holds the power to forgive sins. Well, what does that mean? <laughs> what's he saying? Yeah, he's not saying I'm equal with God. He's saying I am God. So they have a problem with that. This Jesus is, is claiming to be God because they said only, only God can forgive sins. And they were right. But Jesus is saying, yeah, you're right. And I'm, I am he. I'm God. But not only that, we learned last week that he's kind of messing with how, to, uh, how they were gaining their profits by what? Cleansing the temple. So you have that. He is disrupting their way of life, what they thought to be correct. And he's posing as a threat, and he needs to be eliminated. And so this is why, I mean, among other reasons why they hate him. I mean, there's no ambiguity to it. They, they don't highly dislike him. They hate Jesus. And so they're plotting to kill him, but they need to hold off on this at the moment. But I want us to focus, that's not the main point of this text. We know that. I want us to focus on what verse 3 says. While he was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper and reclining at the table, there came a woman. And that's what I want us to focus on tonight. There came a woman. At the start of this verse, we see that there's a man named Simon, and he apparently was a leper at one point. You can assume that he had been healed because if you were a leper, you were an outcast, no one would associate with you. Um, they looked down on you. They didn't want to have anything to do with you. And, and you could also assume that Jesus was probably the one who healed this man. And so maybe this, this man named Simon was wanting to host a feast, if you will, out of gratitude to Jesus. I don't, I don't know. We're just speculating here. But regardless, he was in Bethany at the home of this man, Simon, who used to be a leper. And he was reclining at the table, and then all of a sudden, there came a woman. 
Now, if you look at the gospel accounts, you can see how the men of that day, even the disciples, how they felt um, just because of their culture toward children, toward the afflicted, such as a leper or blind Bartimaeus or someone like that. Um, the tax collectors, we learned that a few weeks ago, Zacchaeus, uh, but also women. So you can imagine what they felt like whenever they saw this woman approaching Jesus. This man has better things to do than for a woman to come up and interrupt what Jesus is doing. You're wasting his time. You're wasting our time. This is an insult. We don't, we don't want the likes of you here. You, you, don't, you don't need to be here. But she approaches. And it's interesting, and we'll, we'll refer to this a few times in this, um, in this study, but John's account kind of goes into a little bit more detail. We find out who this woman is in verse 3. It says, Mary. Now, there's multiple Marys in Scripture. We know that. But this is Mary, the, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. So the one who was sitting at the feet of Jesus when Martha was saying, Jesus, tell Mary to get up and help me because we want to be, you know, we want everything to be just right for you. And, and what does Jesus say? Mary has chosen the right thing. She's doing the right thing, sitting at my feet, learning from me. Her brother, Lazarus, what happened to him? He died. What happened after that? He's alive <laughs> because of Jesus. So you can imagine the great love that this woman has for Jesus. You can see it throughout Scripture. So this is Mary who is approaching Jesus. And what does she do as she approaches Jesus? If the disciples, and, and not just the disciples, but the others who are around weren't fans of just a woman approaching Jesus, they're definitely not going to be um, too happy, apparently, about what she's about to do. It says, There came a woman, being Mary, with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume and pure nard. And what does she do? She broke the vial and poured it over his head. Now, we as 21st century Westerners read that and like, what? <laughs> what, was that? what was that for? What's the point of, of this woman doing this? But it says it's a very costly perfume and an alabaster vial, which was also costly. This is not something that Mary could just casually uh, on her way to, to this, this uh, Simon's house go to a market and pick this up and then pour this perfume over Jesus. I mean, perfume today in and of itself is, is very, it's expensive, isn't it? Um, it is. Um, but I think about, um, you know, there's, there's, she couldn't just pick this up at the marketplace, right? And also, she couldn't do what, what I did one time. So one time, Sierra and I, was, I think we hadn't been married too long, and we were going somewhere, might have been coming to church, and she said, that cologne smells really good. Where'd you get that? And I said, well, if you're like me, you didn't spend it at a mall, the, the money at a mall. I was at a gas station. I was telling her. <laughs> and uh, I was putting gas in the car, and I just make eye contact with this guy, and he just starts walking up to me and telling me a story. And I have no idea if it's true, but got to pray with him and all this. But he was, he was saying, you know, to kind of make ends meet, I'm selling some things. And I was like, what are you selling? He said, check it out. And he like opens his coat like it's like a movie. And I'm thinking, oh man, I'm a 
I, I wasn't, this was before I moved here, so I wasn't on staff here. But, uh, <laughs> the, and I said, what is going on? And he had cologne. I was like, okay. And he's like, try it on, try it on. So I spray it. I'm like, this actually smells pretty good. He said, I'll give it to you for $25. I said, I only have $10 in my wallet. He said, that's good. I got it in $10. I still, to this day, use that cologne. <laughs> but Sierra asked me, how'd you get it? And I told her, that's how I got it. <laughs> so needless to say, this woman did not do that. <laughs> and uh, needless to say, I probably should have been a little more safer. I don't know. But anyway, uh, yeah, cologne, perfume, it's not cheap. Uh, but, and this is not something that she could have done. Uh, just pick it up at the local marketplace. This was something that was worth a lot. In fact, uh, when the disciples get angry, we'll see that they get angry. They basically say that this is a, how much? A year's worth of salary. Th this cost her, this perfume cost her basically a year's worth of what she could earn uh, at, at a job, at any, at any job. So th there had to be a big deal about this. There's something very um, important about this, this perfume in this alabaster box. And it's interesting because what it probably was was a family heirloom. It, it, it meant a lot. And there's archaeologists said that usually th they discovered there was one of two ways and one of two reasons that this perfume was used. One, for a woman who is getting married, it would be used as, as a fragrance. In fact, in John's account, in John chapter 12, as she pours it, uh, John says she pours it on his feet. Mark says she pours it on his head. I'm sure there was plenty that she did both. It's not a contradiction. But John's account says the fragrance filled the room. So this was a very, um, very nice smelling aroma. It had to be if it cost that much. And so it's... Um, it's very costly, and, she, and a woman would typically use it possibly on her wedding day. If she didn't get married, if that didn't happen, then it would be used in her burial, in, in, in the death of a loved one. So this is a very special um, fragrance, and it was a year's worth of what she had. So think about it. When she's pouring this on Jesus' feet, and in that day you, you did nothing but walk around, uh, if you weren't riding on a donkey or something and obviously had sandals, so the feet were, you know, it was a, they were dirty. And so to be able to pour that, it shows her reverence that she reverently poured this on his feet, on his head, and just think of how much that cost her. In a way, you could make the statement that she's, she is pouring out, and I'm not trying to over-spiritualize this, but in a way you can. She's pouring out her future, her year's worth of earnings, and she's just laying it at literally at the feet of Jesus. She's giving everything that she has at that point to Jesus, pouring it on his head, pouring it on his feet, and doing that. And not only that, what does it say? She breaks the bottle. That was really the only way you could open it. So once it's used, once you break it, it's gone. You can't just save it like you're spraying perfume today or cologne, one good spray, you do that, you're good to go. No, like you break the bottle, it's, it's done. It's used. She can't use it again. That's it. So she does that. What happens next though? But some were indignantly remarking to one another. 
Once again, John's account says who it is. Anybody remember who it was? Judas. It was Judas. So Judas, but Mark says some. So it wasn't just Judas. So we always blame Judas. And he, you know, he had it, had it coming as far as this. He, he was complaining, but there were others complaining. So you, you can imagine, I'm sure the other disciples probably hopped on that bandwagon of once this um, perfume was, was laid at Jesus' feet, poured upon his head, they start complaining. And it's not, it's not just, oh man, why did that happen? Indignantly. You can imagine probably what happened where they were whispering to one another, can you believe what she just did? Like almost appalled. This is ridiculous. Why would she do this? First of all, why is she even approaching Jesus? Secondly, why is she doing this? This is really idiotic. It's stupid. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And so they don't understand it. You would think the disciples though, the ones who are following Jesus, the ones who Jesus called on the shores of Galilee, the one who is a tax collector, all these faithful men who lived with Jesus, walked with Jesus, talked with him, learned from him, you would think they'd be the ones cheering her on. I wish I would have thought of that. I wish I would have done something like that. But what do they do? They are angry. They think this is the most irrational thing you could do. What do they say? It says, remarking to one another, why has... (laughs) This perfume been wasted. The one they are following, Jesus, the one who called them, redeemed them, said that what she did was a waste. Pouring out what she had to Jesus was a waste. Think about that for a second. And then you have, going on from that, verse 5, for this perfume... Judas is quoted saying this, for this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii, meaning a denarii was worth a day's work, so 300, about a year's worth of what she had, and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. So when we come at this point of the text, and Judas and likely the other disciples and maybe everybody in that room who were just appalled at what this lady did, what, what do they say? Well, they could have, she could have sold this and given it to the poor. Now, when, we're, when our hearts aren't right and we're confronted um, and someone has proven us wrong for doing something wrong, thinking the wrong way, what do we like to do? We like to justify ourselves, don't we? I know that's something that I struggle, that's, something, that's sinful nature, that's all of us. Well, I did that because of this. Now, we're, we're quick to point other people's faults and say, I can't believe, I cannot believe you did that. Ken, I can't believe you did that. But I turn around and do the same thing and say, well, this is why I did it, okay? The same thing here. Was Judas wanting to give this money to the poor? No, not at all. That was not on his agenda, but most likely what was happening was he knew what she did was very, you know, counter-cultural, counter-culture, but he says, well, this is wrong, but I'm going to justify my views by saying this could have been given to the poor. 
probably why he said that. We like to t- try and take the moral high ground, right? When we know we're wrong, if, if, if we don't get it right in our hearts quickly, that's what ends up happening. We try and take the, find a way to take the moral high road of, well, this is what I would have done. You're foolish for doing this. That's what these men are saying. That's what these men are doing when it, when it comes down to it. And they're saying, this could have been given to the poor. But they were angry, you know, this perf- they say this perfume has been wasted, which is amazing because they knew more than Mary. I'm sure they did. Because as I said, they had been living with Jesus, talking with him, learning from him, hearing his sermons. I mean, up close and personal, watching how he lived, being discipled by him. They knew more than her, yet she in this moment knows way more than they do. Well, I'll put it this way. She understands more than they understand. And we'll also see that as we progress in this text. We see that this is kind of foolish even to the godly men in that time, in that day. And you have to wonder, where do I fit in this story? So I kind of want us to think that as we go throughout the rest of this narrative. But let's see Jesus' response. After it said she could have, been used, she could have used this, sold it to the poor, or sold, sold the profit that she would have gained from it and given it to the poor, and they were scolding her. So they're indignant and they continue to scold her. They shame her. They tell her she's foolish, wrong for doing this. You're, you're wasting this. But Jesus said, what did he say? Let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. I can imagine, you know, Jesus is probably fairly annoyed at what they are saying. For chiding this woman's faithfulness, her devotion to Jesus, and him continually pouring into these disciples for about three years at this point, and they don't get it. And he finally says, just leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She understands. She has done a good deed to me. It reminds me of what, as I mentioned uh, earlier, in the 10th chapter of Luke, where, he, where Mary and Martha are, have Jesus over and Mary is, is uh, sitting at Jesus' feet, what does he say to Martha? Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary for Mary has chosen the good part. He's, he's pretty much saying the same thing again about Mary. He's saying, she has done a good deed to me. She's doing the right thing. You are wrong for thinking this way. She understands what's going on. Why does he say that? Well, he goes on to say, he answers what Judas says. This could have been given, this money could have been given to the poor. But he says, Jesus in verse seven, for you always have the poor with you. He says, you're always gonna have the poor with you. Now this verse, sometimes people use this verse to justify not helping the poor. They're like, well, you always have the poor around you. There's no need to help. But that's taking the verse out of context because what what does he say right after that? He says, for you always have the poor with you and whenever you wish, you can do good to them. So they're always gonna be among you. And in fact, he's quoting, he's re- or at least referring to the 17th chapter uh, of Deuteronomy, I'm, I'm not the 17th chapter, the 15th chapter of Deuteronomy in verse 11, where Moses writes, for the poor will never cease to be in the land. So what are you gonna do about it? Therefore, I command you saying, you shall freely open your hand to your brother 
to your needy and poor in your land. So Jesus is saying, you're always going to have the poor among you. You're always going to have the poor with you. They're always going to be around. But what does he say right after that? You can always do good to them. You'll always have that chance. You'll always have that ministry opportunity to help the poor. But after that, he says, but you do not always have me. Now, when Jesus said this, I can imagine the disciples still might have been a little confused because you can see that throughout the gospels of him saying, this is what's going to happen to me. And they either say, no, it's not, or they're still confused. But Jesus is saying, I'm not always going to be here walking with you. I'm not. And apparently in this passage, the disciples don't understand it, but Mary does. Why? Because what was she doing? She has done what she could. He says she's done everything she could. And what's that? What did she do? She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Why would she do that if she didn't know what was going to happen? The disciples are confused. They say this is a waste. Mary has listened to Jesus. She has sat at his feet and actually processed what he has said and probably understood it, maybe even better than the disciples, apparently better than the disciples understood. And she knows that she needs to do this. Why, though, would she anoint Jesus for burial while he's still alive? What's the point in this? And why, in that case, would Jesus say, apparently it's the right thing to do because Jesus said he scolds the men Leave her alone. She's doing the right thing. He's still alive, but she's anointing me for burial. What's the point in that? Well, she understands apparently that approaching is going to be the worst day of her life. Even worse probably since he is her savior than her brother dying. Because what happened to her brother? The one who brought him back to life, he's now going to die. So the only one who could raise her brother is gone, is going to be gone. The one whom she set at his feet, he's gone. She can't walk with him. She has no hope. So approaching would be the toughest day, the day where the Pharisees, the religious leaders are going to rejoice. It's going to be her worst day. And she's saying, I want to reverently worship you right now by pouring all that I have out. I don't really understand why this is going to happen. I don't understand why this has to happen. This doesn't necessarily make sense to me, but I'm going to take the most expensive prized possession that I have, and I'm laying it at your feet. I don't understand what's going on, but I am all in. I'm giving you everything that I have. And of course, we have to ask ourselves that question, ourselves that question, who are we in this narrative? Because she's saying, I don't know really what is about to happen. I, have, I know that what you say is you're going to die and you're, you're going to be raised, but I don't think they really grasp that latter part. But I know you're not going to be here, but I'm laying all that I have down for you. Now, as we read that story, as I said, who, who are we in this narrative? Are we the ones that scold the people for laying out all they have for Jesus? 
and we try and take the moral high ground by saying, well, they're just being fanatics. They're, they're, just, they're just radical in their belief by selling what they have, by doing this, by doing that, by stepping up and serving. Or are we, like Mary, and even when things in our lives happen that we do not understand, say, I don't understand, God, why you're, do- why you're doing this. I don't know why you're allowing this. I don't even understand what's going on in my present situation or even what you really mean, but I believe you. Not a blind faith, not a faith that makes no sense whatsoever, but a ventured trust, a trust that says, I read what you say and I trust you and I'm all in no matter what the circumstance is. Which one are you in this story? Finally, you see in the final verse what's said about her. Billy Graham preached to millions of people in his lifetime. You can read about D.L. Moody and his faithfulness to evangelism. John and Charles Wesley, you can read about their faithfulness and what they did in their ministry and in their life. George Whitfield and his evangelistic vigor and desire to see people saved. You can read the books, the wonderful works, and read the sermons of Jonathan Edwards. But what does Jesus say about this woman by her simple act? Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. There are a lot of people that have never heard of the men that I just mentioned. But wherever the gospel is spread, when the word of God is proclaimed and this story is shared, they're going to hear about this woman's faithfulness. And all she did, all she did was pour out everything she had at the feet of Jesus. That's what she did. So I have to ask, are we all in? Are we willing to pour everything we have out at the feet of Jesus, no matter what's going on in our life, even if it doesn't make sense? Do we say, Jesus, I love you. No matter what, come what may, I am all in. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we... Thank you for this text. We thank you for the faithfulness of Mary, her love for you. And something that she did that to her was the only logical thing to do, that she poured out all she had at your feet and thought, there's nothing of this, there's nothing that will come of this. But not only is that not true, And not only did Jesus commend her, we know about it today. Because she gave all she had to you. Lord, I pray that anybody that is watching online or is here today, and they have not come to trust you, that you love them, that you gave your son He poured out all he had on the cross because he loved them. If they have not trusted in that, may they come to you in faith 
and do the same thing Mary did and said, I don't understand everything there is to know about the word of God and I never will. I don't understand my circumstance, my situation, but I'm laying it at your feet and I am all in. I pray that that's what they will do today. And those of us who have done that, may we continue to do that every day because we love you, but we only love you because you first loved us. And this we pray in Jesus' name.